We're in 1 Peter 5, and we'll be reading verses 10 and 11, and then Albert will come and talk about that for a little while. So 1 Peter 5:10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last week, I was uh, preaching, teaching in San Francisco, and it didn't jar my mind until Steve mentioned about how I wasn't here in the Super Bowl, and I wasn't here when the Giants were in the World Series and things like that, and I was thinking, oh, that's what I've been suckered at, because other pastors asked me to teach for them, and so that's why I asked Steve to step in here, like, oh, okay, that makes sense now, and I was thinking, oh, they're asking me, and, oh, okay, they're just using me, okay. Um, <laughs> But it's cool. It's all right. I like doing this anyway, so it's either here or somewhere else. It's all right. It's also funny because, you know, during spring break and stuff, when I take vacations, I'm thinking I'm going to get a break too. And so, you know, I call my friends and stuff. Hey, we're going to be in Southern California with my kids' spring break and all this kind of stuff. And then, like, a day later, I start getting calls again. So I got a call from, like, where I went to pastoral school. Hey, can you teach on Tuesday? And then, hey, are you going to be here on Sunday? So it's a working vacation for me. Which is also a blessing, because now my vacation's paid for. So it works out. It's okay. It's all good. Anyway, here we are. Second to the last study in First Peter. I'm not going to extend it any further. For those of you who are worried, we'll cover the last several verses in one shot next week. If I don't get called off somewhere else. If there's no sporting event that I get called off to. First Peter has been an extremely practical book. And then just looking at chapter 5, we see how practical it is. We looked at humility, verses 5 and 6. We looked at anxiety, verse 7. We looked at our adversary, verses 8 and 9. So just really, really practical things. And verses 10 and 11 isn't any different. Really practical. And I think it could be summarized in this word, safety. Even though it's never mentioned in these verses, but I think in just in summary, looking at this word safety, it kind of encapsulates those verses for me. So before we start, let me just open us up in prayer here, inviting God to be in our presence and for the Spirit to speak to our hearts. Lord, you know what we need. You know what we need to hear from you. And yet, Lord, we sometimes get in the way of one another because we misrepresent you. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us sift through all of the stuff that can be obstacles simple things, Lord, like a projector not working or the rain or whatever else, those things that kind of take us off course. Help us to be sensitive to your word and sensitive to your spirit as to what you are saying to your church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this word safety, this topic of safety, something that's just very familiar to us because it's something that we consider in all of our decisions, really you're thinking about this, right? You think of safety when you're purchasing your home. You think of, oh, is the structure safe? Is the neighborhood safe? You think of these things when you purchase a car. Is the car safe? Like, what are the safety ratings? When you make an investment, is this investment safe? Is my money going to be there? And you look at all these types of things, everything, the things that you put your valuables in, a safe or safety deposit box. And everything that you consider in life, whether it's your medication, you're taking a surgery, or where you're sending somebody, where you're going to travel, it all comes down to this topic. Even crossing the street. What you eat, or something you've never eaten before. Like, all of it. 
Whatever the question may be, this is one of the first things that pops into your head. Now, when considering safety in everything I've mentioned so far, every scenario that you can think of, there's something in common within all of those things, that they're all temporary. The safety in them is all temporary. And there is one place that safety is forever, and that is in the Lord. Right? Because eventually that structure falls apart. Eventually there's a newer technology from your car that makes it more safe than the other one. Things always change. Not so with God. And you recall that the people receiving Peter's letter here were persecuted Christians who probably never felt safety. That this is not something that they got to enjoy. Yet this is something that we all desire. This is something that we all want. We want to feel safe. We want our loved ones to feel safe, and yet we aren't. I mean, we're living here in the United States, so we feel safer than some, but we are in Oakland. So you talk to someone that's not from here, and they kind of wonder about our safety, but for us, it's just like the normal thing. You don't feel any more threatened than anybody else, and it's just kind of relative depending on what you're used to, where you are, and things like that. But one of the places that reminds us when there is a lack of safety is actually when we're suffering. It's in our suffering, which brings us to verse 10 here. And after you have suffered a little while, there's a reminder there that things aren't safe and varied in terms of what you're suffering. But the thing is, who wants to suffer? Who wants that? Unless you're sick, right? You're sadistic or something. You don't want it. You are always looking for ways to prevent it. You're looking for ways to evade suffering, right? That's what we typically do. Yet in suffering is a place that we often meet God, often a place where we see God. It's in our suffering. Suffering is a part of life. And and for the follower of Jesus, as well as those who don't follow Jesus, we all experience suffering in our life. And the Christian is told that he or she will temporarily suffer for their faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 6, In this rejoice, Now, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We will be grieved by various trials. It's not a needless experience. 1 Peter 1, verse 7, just carrying on in that chapter. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That safety we seek, that true eternal safety that we seek, it's only found in God. It's only found in God. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalms 121, verses 1 and 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Are all these songs like popping up to you? I know the ESV has changed the translation, God is my refuge and my... Maybe I'm too old. Those were like awesome songs back when I was in college. Anyway, Psalms 125, verses 1 and 2. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. He abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. And Peter knew these psalms. And he knew that the people he wrote to needed to be reminded of this eternal safety found only in God. And so with all of his knowledge of the scriptures and from his learning by sitting with Jesus Christ for three solid years, he wrote these words. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, the God of all grace, grace, the favorable things that we are given that we don't deserve. That's who God is. See, when we deserve a guilty verdict, he exonerates us. When we deserve death, he gives us life. When we deserve a penalty, he gives us reward. All possible through Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the tomb, his ascension to God the Father. And grace is one of those words that Christians are just really familiar with. I don't know about you, but outside of Christian circles, I rarely hear this word. I don't hear this word. It's only within Christian circles that I hear it a lot. And it's found everywhere in our circles. It's found in our music. It's found in our literature. It's found in all of our writings, our conversations. Yet through this familiarity, what I'm afraid of is that we have overlooked the depth of the meaning of grace. What's arguably the most popular Christian song of probably all time? Amazing Grace. Do you know who that was written by? It's written by a guy named John Newton, a famous poet, a famous hymnist and clergyman. And what this hymn is, is a spiritual autobiography of his life. Because who was John Newton before he encountered Jesus Christ? He was a slave trader. Actually, he was still a slave trader during that transition when he was still a Christian too. So he was dealing with some stuff. But he was a slave trader, and this is what he was known for, being a troublemaker. This is what he was. He was locked up with the slaves on a ship voyage once because he kept on like prying at the captain and writing poetry about the captain and songs about the captain. And he got the captain so mad, got thrown in where the slaves were stored. Then they got to Sierra Leone, and he made him a slave. He sold them. Like, this is this guy. This is how bad he was. This is a guy who was known for his profanity, like, he used every word that a sailor would use, but then he created some. He created different words, and this guy was so profane. He was notorious for causing problems on the ships that he was just a sailor, but he, eventually he became a, a ship captain, and he was captaining these slave trade ships. But then he was transformed by God. And years later, he wrote this song, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He wasn't just saying like, oh, you know, I'm a wretch because I lied to my mom. Oh, this guy sold people into slavery. This guy was creating bad words that weren't there. And this guy got locked up by his ship captain because he was like making fun of him so much that he just got thrown. Like, it's this guy. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Do you get John Newton? It wasn't just some guy that... I was raised in the church and like I know my sin and stuff. I mean, this is a guy that was truly saw, experienced, like he experienced that amazing grace. And we find the grace of God throughout Christian history as in the story of Newton. And you also just look in the Bible and you see stories in the Bible over and over again. One of these stories Jesus told was of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verses 20 through 24 
And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. What is this a picture of? God the Father and His grace to us. It's His grace. The God of all grace. See, without knowing God is the God of all grace, you simply can't know God. You won't know Him. We experience God when we experience His grace. And that can look like a lot of different things. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. It's all sorts of forms, right? So whatever you are going through, God's grace will be able to meet you in your pain, will be able to meet you in your suffering, in your need. Now, it's not safety from your pain, but God will be present in your pain. He'll be there with you. Verse 10, carrying on here, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Now, what is this eternal glory in Christ? It's the radiance of his majesty, of his splendor, of his holiness for eternity, forever. We are safe in that glory, but to experience the presence of his glory, it seems like, according to these verses, that suffering is tied to that. That the suffering is tied to the glory. Back to verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while. You see the tie? It's after this suffering. The God of all grace, this is the umbrella of everything, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. It's all tied, covered under his grace, that umbrella of grace. But those things are tied together, the suffering and the glory now, suffering is one of those things that leads us to glory. Glory happens after suffering. To know what perfect humanity and character are and reflecting God in that happens after suffering. To experience glory and to know what complete victory is happens after suffering. To feel honored by God, our King, and being in His presence occurs after suffering. And you notice what Peter wrote about the suffering we encounter and the glory we have in Christ. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory, and you notice these durations, a little while, eternal glory. Suffered a little while. Now, I don't mean to make light of what you are going through, because I don't know what suffering you may be going through. I just know the suffering I go through, and I'll just share with you a little bit of my sufferings, my physical sufferings. I have a metabolic issue going on with my body, and what this causes me is extreme pain in my joints. So last Friday night, just a few days ago, I couldn't sleep all night long because my ankle joints and all throughout my foot and my knee on my right were just in pain. And everywhere I moved was painful. Everything I tried to do was painful and all that kind of stuff. So I studied that night. And then after I just got tired of studying and I couldn't study anymore, I watched Walking Dead. 
because like, that, that's what I felt like. I was like, I'm the walking dead, like this stinking leg. Am I going to ruin it for any of you if I talk about like season five? Okay. There's this leg part. I was like, hmm, that's all I'm going to say. Strong prescription painkillers, they don't work for me. It doesn't do anything. I guess because it's metabolic, it doesn't make me sleepy, it doesn't knock me out, and I'm taking two different kinds. It doesn't do anything. So I move from room to room in my house, like it takes me so long just to go to any room, any room. And now I can laugh at it, but earlier I thought it was pretty pathetic, but you know, in my house I have like these frames on my doors and stuff, and it's easier for me to hang like a monkey through my house. It's easier for me to do that than to walk. See, you can laugh now, but at the time I was just like, oh, how pathetic, I'm the monkey, you know, just swinging. And other times, it's easier for me to get on the floor and like drag myself than to even go on all fours because I can't put any pressure on my knee. So it's like I'm dragging myself like I'm a paraplegic. I don't tell you this to get sympathy from you or to get empathy from you. I tell you this because of my own personal suffering that I rest in God's word that this is for a little while. I mean, it's been for five years now, but a little while. And I'm holding on to that. I'm holding on to that because this part, it has to be real to me because I can't envision that I live my life like this for the next 30, 40 years where like right now I'm relatively strong where I can swing through my house like a monkey, but probably not 20 years from now. I'm banking that it's a little while. And as Christians who believe in being with God for eternity, our time on this earth is a little while. Well, I mean, what's the life expectancy in the United States, the average life expectancy? I looked it up. The last one I saw was 79 and a half years. Now, most of us don't suffer that whole time, the entire 79 and a half years. But even if we did, even if we did, in light of eternal glory, a little while. We experience pain. I know what pain is like physical pain. I know what that is like. Suffering here in this fallen world, even sinless, perfect Jesus himself suffered. Now turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. This is what Isaiah prophesied about our Savior, Jesus, starting in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered immensely. Peter suffered. We all suffer a little while. A little while. 
I mentioned John Newton earlier in the sermon, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. One of the guys I didn't mention that was actually really instrumental in helping him is a guy by the name of William Cooper, spelled like Cowper, but pronounced Cooper. Very famous hymnist, very famous Christian who's credited for this phrase that you guys might not even know that you're using this all the time, but it came from him. God moves in mysterious ways. That's William Cooper. There's a window at Westminster Abbey that honors him. And so something about Cooper. Cooper suffered a great deal from mental illness. He was put in insane asylums. He was institutionalized. He suffered a lot. And he suffered from depression. He suffered from insanity. He attempted suicide three different times. And much of his greatest works came after these times of great suffering. There were multiple times. But afterwards, that's when he wrote his greatest hymns or his greatest poems, his greatest writings, his greatest contributions to Christian heritage were in those times. Many of those times were inspiring to him to use those things. And so when we think of like God works in mysterious ways, that's Cooper. And you think about where this guy's coming from with his mental illness, and he's writing, yeah, God works in a weird way. I don't get it because I'm kind of going nuts myself here, but I know he's working. And that God uses our suffering. It's not something for us to disregard or deny or to run from, but it's often in our suffering that we draw closer to God, and that's what happened with Cooper. I know this is true for me, and I'm sure that it's true for you, in times of grief, we all go somewhere. We all go somewhere. Now, it's one of two places. It's either you're going to God or you're going to an idol. It's one of two places. So you can go to God or you can choose drugs, sex, alcohol, food, whatever you're running to that is not God, an idol. But we all go somewhere. We all go somewhere in our suffering. So this is an opportunity to draw closer to God for those who are willing to humble themselves to go there or to go further away from God because your pride is not allowing you to go to God. Tying back to earlier studies about anxiety, right, and humility. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. God is able to. You're not. God is able to. And we often want to escape our suffering when it's the suffering that shapes who we are that blesses the world. I mean, you look at William Cooper and you look at John Newton. Cooper suffered greatly, but he blessed the world. He blessed John Newton with his influence during that time that Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Yet we often want to run from our suffering when there's something there for us to help us draw closer to God. I know I did. Prayed all night that night. Last week, I watched this documentary about Corrie ten Boom. Her family helped the Jews in Netherlands when the Nazis were coming through and hid them. And so there was an informant that let the Nazis know that the ten Boom family was doing this. So they were all imprisoned. And so she suffered terribly in that concentration camp. Her family suffered terribly in that concentration camp. Her dad died just 10 days after being imprisoned. And so 
after her experience, after the suffering for a little while, she came out and she started writing books. And just really two points she wanted to point to, the glory of God and forgiveness. Those were the two things that she always wanted to point to. And so in her book, I love the title, Tramp for the Lord. She wrote about a time when she returned to Germany. And when she returned to Germany, she was approached by a guard that she recognized was one of the most cruel guards to her and her sister, especially her sister. Her sister died in the camp. And this guard was really cruel to her sister, Betsy, who she was so close to. And so Betsy died in that camp. And so here's this guy that was so cruel to her and to Betsy, especially to Betsy, who she loved so dearly. And he comes up to her and he asked her for forgiveness. She didn't want to. And here's a quote from her book. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Because she forgave him right there. It was through her suffering that she came to that revelation, that she came to that experience. And here's a quote from Betsy that Corey often quoted. There's no pit so deep that he, God, is not deeper still. He's not going to protect you from suffering. He's going to be there with you in your suffering. There's no amount of suffering where God can't get under your suffering with his grace. That he's going to be there with his grace. That he's going to meet you right there. Now, Corey Tim Boom experienced the love of God so intensely after great suffering. She learned how grand God's grace and forgiveness were after that great suffering. Now, while we are suffering, it's really hard to know what God is up to, isn't it? You're just thinking like, oh, what is this? Like, what benefit is this? What can possibly be good from this? Something that we need to do is we need to let go of that pride, that desire to know, that desire to control, that desire to have things be the way that we want them to be, and to acknowledge God is God. God is God. And that's for all aspects of our lives, isn't it? We are a society that questions everything. Even the statement that I just made right now, you are questioning that. Do I question everything? What do I question? What do I I'm going to question. You're questioning right now. Everything. Everything that I say, you question. Which is good because I'm saying it. But if God says it, God is God. You can question it, but the default is God is God. God is God, and you and I aren't. We can have confidence in God because the Bible tells us, continuing on here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's why you can have confidence in that. God will restore you, meaning he will mend you. It's the same Greek word used in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, when James and John, you know, the sons of Zebedee, they're, they're, they're mending their nets. It's the same Greek word there for restore here in 1 Peter. Same thing. They were repairing damaged nets so that they could be used for the purpose that they were made for. What were they made for? To catch fish. That's what they are made for. What's your purpose as a follower of Jesus? Matthew 4, verse 19. 
follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Your purpose is to catch fish. That's your purpose. God will repair what was broken to fulfill his purpose here on this earth. He restores people to usefulness. He's going to restore you to usefulness. For those of you who feel useless, you're broken, you need mending, you need to be restored, and you've tried a bunch of other stuff. You've tried all of those idols. You haven't tried God. You've tried all of those idols. So what happens? You find yourself in that same broken place. God is in the restoration business. God's in the restoration business. He wants all of those broken pieces in your life, and he wants to restore all of it. God himself will restore. What else will he do? He will confirm. What does this mean? He will stabilize you. He will stabilize you. I liken this to an illustration of like a patient who's gone to the ER who's just flatline dead. You're dead. Just like you were before you knew Jesus. You're dead. You were in darkness. First thing the medical team does when you get in is what do they do? They make sure your heart's beating again. They make sure you're breathing again. That's what they do. They've restored your life. They've restored your life. But then after they do that, after you're breathing and after your heart's beating, what do they do? They stabilize you. They stabilize you, right? They check that all your vitals are normal, your pulse rate, your respiratory rate, your blood pressure, your oxygen saturation. They check all those things to look that you're stable. They look at all these vital signs. So God restores, he confirms, and then thirdly, he strengthens. Now, this you kind of have to look a little bit deeper. You have to look to the root word of this Greek word because when you look to that root word, it's stand. Stand, meaning to set. Right, to set. So the idea behind strengthen is God is not just going to restore you in that, yeah, you're alive, your heart's beating, and you're breathing. And he's not just going to stabilize you in that your vital signs are all good. Blood pressure is good, respiratory, pulse rate, oxygen, it's all good. You will be made strong. You're not just going to lie there. You're going to stand up. You're going to stand. You've been knocked over by things in life, but he's going to help you up. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's not my strength that holds me up. My weakness needs God to strengthen me to hold me up. He strengthens. And then lastly, God will establish you. So he restores, he confirms, he strengthens, he establishes. Back to the illustration of this ER patient that was flatlined. You're brought back. You're restored. You're stabilized. And then you can stand. But then there's this fourth part where your life can be built upon. It's not that you can just stand anymore. It's that you can step. That you can go be productive in your work, in your ministry, in your school, whatever you're doing, in your family. That you have this firm foundation as to move forward with your life. That it's not that you're just breathing, that your vital signs aren't just stable, that you can just stand, but that you are fully animated, fully rehabilitated, and ready to face the world for Jesus. He does that. And I think some people who claim to follow Jesus stop somewhere there. That you haven't been established. That you just got some restoration and you stopped. You didn't go through the full rehab. Maybe your vitals are stable, but you can't stand. 
And God is looking to do all four of these things. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27 for an illustration of this, of being established. Starting verse 21 here, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a really solemn warning to all of us. But the one who does the will of God, the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, does them, this is about being established, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. It was established. Not that you were just restored. Not that you were just confirmed, not that you were just strengthened. You're established. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And great was that fall of it. Not established. The evidence that what we hear is indeed what we believe is proven in our actions. It is proven in our life's Choices. You can say all you want, but your actions prove what you really believe. Your actions do, not your talk. If you say you believe it and you do something else, you don't believe it. Be honest with yourself. It's more than being restored, confirmed, and strengthened. We have to be established. We have to apply what we know and what we feel. There needs to be evidence of a transformed life firmly planted in God's word. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm really proud of someone in the church yesterday because I've been working with him because he's been living in sin for a long time. And so we've been chatting about this for months. And so yesterday in the middle of my study, in the middle of my gimpiness and all this kind of stuff, he calls me up and says, hey, I'm ready to go. I need to move out of this situation and I'm ready to do it. So I tell my wife, and she's like, you're going to walk and help this guy move like that? I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And so we go, and I'm helping him in the afternoon and getting his life straight. I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud of him. It's not fluff anymore. That what he's saying and professing is true. Because the thing is, you know, if you say you're a Christian, your actions have to coincide with it. Sexual immorality can be no more in your life. It's not that you don't fall. We're all sinful. I'm not saying that you're perfect. But you have to make choices that say, I'm taking a stand. I'm being established. I'm moving forward. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's Peter declaring here? This is all God's. All power, all might for all eternity. This is God. David wrote this in Psalms chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. 
to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then Peter ends this verse with this. Amen. Which means truly, surely, right? In our hip-hop culture, word. Right, this is what it means. This is what it means. This is just a categorical agreement. As I shared with you, I was preaching in San Francisco last week where someone in the congregation every so often would say, Amen, when I was preaching, I got to thinking, yeah, this is God's truth. And we're in agreement with that. Awesome. Thank you. Right? And so I hear that every once in a while in our services and in our prayers, not that often, but often, and enough for me. I don't really need it all that much. But this is such a great word to use when you're in agreement with somebody in prayers, in what they're saying about Scripture, to say that along, right? To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Church says, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are a God who restores, confirms, who strengthens, who establishes. And we can trust in that eternal safety knowing that you're a God like that. Not that you prevent us from suffering or protect us from suffering, but that you travel to us, with us, in that suffering, that you sent your only Son to this earth, not from the protections of the heavenlies, Lord, but that you are right here with us in the trenches to go through it with us in our suffering for the things that we've created for what things that sin has created. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here this morning, Lord, who are experiencing suffering. We know that it's for a little while, but still, God, it hurts. And so, Lord, we ask for our faith to be increased. We ask for your strength. We ask for your restoration. We ask for your confirmation, your strength, your establishment in us. In Jesus' name. Amen.